Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning again. Wow, it's 11.36. This was a short service. I got up here pretty early. Y'all are going to get to go to lunch at a decent time. Shoot for 1.30. Shoot for 1.30. Just for you, Ron. Just for you. So... Today's sermon is entitled, An Unlikely King, An Unlikely King. And I'm under the conviction that David and Jesus had a lot in common. And I also believe that God was giving us insight through David as to the plan that he was going to carry out through Jesus. The anointing of David was very unlikely. The slaying of Goliath by David was very unlikely. And so I want to take some time this morning and and look at some of these things concerning David and then compare them to Jesus. Now, when it came to the physical appearance of David, he was seemingly unimpressive. You may recall that Israel's first king, King Saul, was very tall, very royal, very kingly, mighty and warlike. Yet when it came to David, we did not see this sort of appearance. And when God called the prophet Samuel to go and seek out and anoint a new king, he had to remind him before he went that looks could be deceiving. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. Now, he's talking about Eliab here, Jesse's oldest son. Do not look on Eliab's appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Amen. Amen. As humans, we often get caught up looking at the physical and the outward appearances. But that isn't the way that God does things. That's not what God is focused on. Remember what we know about Jesus. There was a prophecy given in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, and we're told that he did not look mighty or royal or kingly. Isaiah 53, 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was just an ordinary person on the outside. Yet we know that inwardly he was anything but ordinary. And going back to David, we also know that he was the youngest of all of his brothers. Jesus, or Jesse, had, he brought out seven of his sons to parade them in front of Samuel. But finally, Samuel's like, Is this it? Are these all your sons? 
And Jesse answers, oh, well, I've got one more, but he's just a, he's just a young shepherd boy. He's the youngest one. It's almost as if in, in Jesse's mind, he viewed David as the runt of the bunch. Amen. Didn't even think to bring him to the anointing party. Uh, he's just the runt. Yet, when David arrived, it was him who was the youngest, who was the humblest, who had the servant's heart that was chosen by God to be king. Now, we're a bit removed from that time and culture, but this was a massive shift away from the norm. In fact, it was an overturning of something called primogeniture, primogeniture, which is when the greatest blessing, the most important blessing, always went to the firstborn. This opened the door for a different kind of king, a humble shepherd king. To his family's surprise, David was ultimately the anointed one. And as the story goes on, we, we get the inkling that his older brothers were not at all pleased with this fact. And, and this is fairly relatable, right? It's fairly common. Any older sibling would be quite annoyed and perturbed by the way that this situation worked out. Amen. And this similarly too David shared with Jesus. Speaking about Jesus' own anointing, John wrote this in chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' own brothers, they doubted and dismissed him. And most likely, it was because his outward appearance did not fit their idea of what the Messiah would be like. What else do we know about David? He was an artist, right? He was an artist. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a lover. He was a creator of beautiful things. David hardly fit the template of warrior king like Saul did. Yet, isn't this also like Jesus? Isn't this also like Jesus? He was also a lover of mankind and a creator of beautiful things. He's the creator of every beautiful thing. And then when we shift back to David, we also see that he was completely obedient to his father. David was obedient to his father. 1 Samuel 17, 17 through 18, it says, And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now remember, this was after the anointing service. Yet David 
was still willing to play the role of a cheese delivery man. Wow. He was happy to run simple errands to obey his father and to serve his brothers. Doesn't this sound a lot like Jesus? Though Jesus was the eternal king of heaven, he was willing to humble himself and become a servant of mankind. We might think that was below his service, but Jesus didn't feel that way. Praise God he didn't feel that way. He obeyed his father even to the point of death, even to the point of a shameful death on the cross. He was a humble servant. Jesus washed the very feet of his disciples because he was setting a new standard of what it meant to be a king, to be a leader. He didn't meet the cultural expectations, but I don't think that really bothered Jesus. He didn't care much for that. I was fine by him. David's sincere motives and actions were misunderstood by people, even his own brother. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You see this little jab here? You should be tending the sheep, and there's not even a lot of them. Dad must not trust you. Your job is so little. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Older brothers, don't say this to your younger siblings. Don't treat them this way. I know your heart and how evil it is. For you have come down to see the battle. This is what Eliab said to David. You aren't here because you're obeying dad. You're not here to serve us bread and cheese. You want to catch a glimpse of the battle that you're never going to see because you're not a warrior like me. But again, this was just like Jesus. He was constantly misunderstood and misinterpreted. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there were accusals and accusations like, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? You must be just like them. You cast out demons, yes, but you only do it through the power of Satan. Why do your disciples eat without washing their hands? Why don't you just come down off of the cross? Why don't you save yourself? These accusals and accusations. You may recall that I preached a sermon earlier this year where I stated that when it came to the Pharisees and Jesus, they were mystified by his movements because they misunderstood his motives. This was constant for Jesus. Happened all the time. David represented Israel in battle against Goliath just as Jesus represents us in battle against the great enemy. 
He is our representative. He is our king. He is for us, not against us. On the outside, David didn't seem like a warrior, and he didn't fit the expected mold. 1 Samuel 17, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But the same was thought of Jesus. The nation of Israel was holding certain expectations concerning their Messiah. They expected their Messiah to be a mighty warrior king that would come and overthrow and destroy the evil Roman Empire. That's what they were waiting for. Now, Jesus was a warrior, but a different kind. Jesus waged the warfare of compassion. He combated the ways of evil with love, mercy, justice, and compassion. And I love this quote from the book, Ministry of Healing. The Savior's work was not restricted to any time or place. His compassion knew no limit. Wow. Wow. His compassion knew no limit. Jesus was constantly at war, but his weapon was love. His weapon was love. He knew that only love could defeat hate. He knew that only light could vanquish darkness. And when it came to David, he tried to go forth with Saul's armor, right? And he had Saul's sword attached to his side, and he only got a few steps before he was like, whoa, 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 I can't go onto the battlefield being weighed down with this stuff. This is not me. This is not who I am. And he eventually went on to use lowly and humble shepherd's tools in his fight. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. David wasn't the kind of person that we would think would defeat this giant Goliath. Just as we wouldn't think that Jesus was the type of person that would be able to defeat Rome. But Jesus' mind was on bigger things. Jesus didn't come to defeat Rome. Jesus came to defeat sin and death itself. And did he win, y'all? He did. David went into his battle with a rod, a staff, shepherd's pouch, five smooth stones, and a sling. And this was so out of the ordinary that even Goliath himself was offended, right? He's like, what am I, a dog that you come against me with these puny little weapons, these toys? And how did Jesus go into his warfare? He went in with a towel and a basin full of water and a heart full of love and compassion and forgiveness. That's how Jesus went to war. But again, it was only because Jesus was waging a warfare of compassion. 
Now, David, David downplayed the importance of military weapons and did his best to distance those things from God. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David went into battle and didn't even carry a sword. And I imagine everybody that was watching him go was like, this dude is dead. We've just spoken to little David for the last time. Doesn't even have a sword. But it says, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And maybe you're thinking, yes, but this is where things go separate ways in terms of similarities between David and Jesus, right? Because Jesus had a sword, but it wasn't in his hand. Revelation 19, 15, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is his word. And Jesus' word is bond. Jesus' word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This unbreakable rod of iron is, again, a shepherd's instrument, a shepherd's tool. Now, did you know that David went on to ultimately slay Goliath with his own sword? He slayed the mighty giant with a weapon that he neither employed or made. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now, this little part of the story is usually left out of the children's books, right? <laughs> but this is, this is what happened. This is how the story went. But David couldn't cut off Goliath's head with a sword that he himself had because he didn't have a sword. So he used Goliath's weapon against him. And Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus did something similar. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Goliath's head was cut off with his own sword, and Satan was defeated with his own horrible weapon. Jesus neither employed nor created death, yet he used it to defeat the enemy of our souls. And after David's unusual and surprising victory, there was talk of whose son he was. Whose son is this? As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. Figure out whose son this is. And after Jesus's unusual and surprising victory on the, the cross, 
the same kind of thing was wondered. The same kind of talk took place. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Jesus wasn't just the son of Abraham. Jesus wasn't just the son of David. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus is the unlikely king. Jesus is the unlikely king. Jesus broke every mold. He became a curse so that we could be blessed. He descended down so that we could be raised up. He died so that we could live. He became a servant so that we could be set free. He experienced pure hatred so that we could experience his pure, undefiled, eternal love. Jesus is a mighty warrior, but not the kind that the world wants. Instead, Jesus is a warrior of compassion, which is actually the kind the world needs. We have faith because of him. We have hope because of him. And we have salvation because of him. As we've seen today, Jesus was like David, yet unlike David. He was everything King David could have been, but wasn't. But like David, Jesus was and is an unexpected and unlikely king. Jesus was, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, the fulfillment of all God's promises. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. God does keep his promises, but often in the ways that to us seem the most unexpected and unlikeliest. Because his ways and his timing are not ours. And in these stories of David and Jesus, I hope that you are encouraged that even when things may not look the way that you'd hoped or expected, that you can still know that God is at work. God is at work. Sometimes he can use the situations and even the people that we are least expecting to bring blessings and comfort to us in our darkest hours. Amen and amen. As we close, I'd like to offer you a practical way to apply something from today's sermon. So pull out your phones and take a picture of this week's secret place practice. And I know I've been doing this for a while. Some of y'all are new. And the sermon that this originally was based off of, this concept of secret place, was months and months ago. Essentially, secret place is that time between you and God. That time that you sit aside with no distractions, just between you and your loving Father. So secret place time, that's your prayer time. That's your alone time with God. So here's your secret place practice for this week. Things and people are not always how they appear on the outside. 
God uses unlikely scenarios and judges the inner hearts of people. In accepting this truth, are you willing to fully commit to trusting God with whatever difficult situation that you are facing? Give it to God in prayer and believe that he is at work. And the accompanying text is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Before we have our closing prayer, I'm gonna invite, is David in here? <laughs> David Hansen, paging David. He's probably setting up for Pathfinder stuff. Uh, Sarah, would you be willing to, to fill in? Normally what I do is I invite our elder in, in charge for the day to come up and stand at the foot of the steps. And after the benediction, I will come down over here and after the benediction, you who wish can be dismissed and go enjoy a potluck meal. But if there's anybody here that has any specific requests, any, any specific prayer requests, any specific needs, maybe you've just got an amazing praise that, that you've just got to share how God was working in your life this week, then, then Sarah will be up here, I will be up here, and we would love to hear from you and lift your petition, lift your praise up to our Father. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we thank you for all the different ways throughout Scripture that we can come to understand Christ better, to know his character, to realize the plan that you have for our lives and that it's only possible because of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for giving us the spirit of Christ. We thank you for your grace that not only forgives us, puts us in a place of justification, but also sanctifies us, renews our minds, gives us a new heart. And so, Lord, as we go out into this world, we want to stand firm on faith, believing what you have said about us is true, and you have called us your children. You have called us your sons and daughters. And you have reconciled us back to you through Christ. And you've now given us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, give us opportunities to let our light shine. Give us opportunities to share this good news of your love with others. And Lord, as we face difficulties, as we face confusing things in this sinful world, may we remember and truly believe that your ways are not our ways. And that you can use the most unlikely people in the most random circumstances to offer us hope, comfort, and strength. Lord, we thank you for your love. And we give our love back to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.